0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, April 1st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. The plea bargain turns the justice system on its head, and the trend toward plea bargaining has virtually eliminated one of the most important protections of our criminal justice system, the jury trial. Dan Cannon is author of the new book, Pleading Out. We spoke last week. Cato's Clark Neely um, and uh, Somal Trivedi of uh, the ACLU uh, and others and I have talked a lot about the jury trial, about plea bargaining, about charge stacking, about the degree to which our criminal justice system has been successful at eliminating the jury trial. Uh, Before we get into a lot of the meat of what uh, Pleading Out, the title of your book, about what Pleading Out looks like, how did the founders of the United States of America understand the jury trial, what was, what was the value of the jury trial in their eyes?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, the, the, the value was tremendous, right. you know, as, um, sort of a, a, uh, conduit for, um, you know, uh, for, for civic responsibility, right. As a, for, for lack of a better way of saying it. Um, and you know, you've, you've got this sort of, uh, early sense that, um, the jury trial was this thing that the, you know, the King of England was taking away from people that, you know, we were, we were, were, uh, um, you know, keeping people away from, you know, keeping people off of juries and taking jury trials, um, out of areas where they, they needed to be. Um, and that, you know, is actually part of the original declaration of independence. You've got this, you know, indictment of, the king for taking jury trials away from people. And, um, you know, but their understanding of what the jury was and how powerful the jury was supposed to be, particularly in New England, was much different than the way that we understand it now, um, because juries were more powerful then, right? You know, and and that's the interesting thing that I really didn't have a good grasp on until I started researching for the book, was that, you know, juries now um, tell us, you know, give us fact findings. They're the fact finding. Right, you know, so they say. Well, the 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 whether or not the car ran the red light, you know, that's sort of the function of the jury now. But up until about 1850 in New England, you've got a situation in which the jury says not only what the facts are, but what the law is. You know, so not only did the car run the red light—it's a bad example for the 19th century—but still, yeah. You know, but but whether or not it's illegal to run a red light, and having that kind of power concentrated in a citizen jury once working class people started sitting on the juries was a big deal like it was a problem <laughs> once once universal white male suffrage kicked in and so
0: and and so the the role of the jury in determining not just facts but also the law itself would seem to be a perhaps
1: disciplining force when it came to, came to writing laws. Yes, indeed. Yeah, I mean, the jury was really sort of the conscience of the community, you know, which was, I mean, not a great thing when only select few like landed white men could, could serve on juries. Um, but, you know, and it, as I said, they started stripping those powers away from the jury right about the same time that universal white male suffrage became a thing nationwide. So by 1830, when you see the emergence of plea bargaining, you've also got... Um, Universal white male suffrage, and there's this this um, concerted effort in Massachusetts where we see plea bargaining begin. You also see that uh, jury trials become more complicated. Um, you know they start introducing all these you know sort of opaque rules of evidence, these letters and numbers that we know today, and start making it less accessible to to you know lay juries to working class people. Um, and also there's there, you know the courts and the legislatures ultimately start taking away the power of, uh, of juries to decide what the law is and that was enormously controversial in the 1850s in Massachusetts but now it's just like what we accept about juries they're just the finders of fact. okay so
0: finders of fact uh, that's a really narrow category and I've heard that I've heard that stated before uh, by friends who are prosecutors. Um, that you know it is a complicating factor to have juries that wield a great deal of power you said that the the plea bargain originated in massachusetts what was what set that off
1: so you know as best as we can tell the the you know, plea bargaining as we know it now was illegal prior to the 1830s in massachusetts you're really right up to the 1840s in massachusetts you can see records of um, you know, I talk in the book about uh, I think the guy's name is Asael Huntington, who was a prosecutor in Massachusetts, who actually got prosecuted for offering deals to defendants. So right up until the 1840s, even in Massachusetts, this is this you know controversial sort of thing. Well, all of a sudden, you see the number of guilty pleas go way up in Boston, and I think by the time you get to to the 1850s. You're talking about a 50% guilty plea rate on criminal cases. And the 1880s, I think you're up to almost 90% guilty plea rate uh, uh, to the cases resolved by guilty plea. So it's just this enormous growth uh, in Massachusetts in a short period of time. And it's because the courts were actively involved in trying to break the back of organized labor at the same time. So in the 1840s, you've got this decision, you know, it it becomes this critical mass. There's these workers that go in the 1830s. You've got, you know, the the population of Boston itself shoots up by 50% because you've got all these immigrant laborers coming in from all over the country and from Europe. And so there's this mass of working classes, 1834, you've got the first federation of labor unions that forms in New York and the ruling classes are getting scared they're like, OK, we got to do something about this. So the first thing they try to do is just let's prosecute them all for organizing under the conspiracy statutes. Well, that does not worked for very long because, you know, people are getting beat up. Like <laughs> The prosecution witnesses are getting beat up outside the courthouse and that kind of thing. And who's being called to serve on juries? Yeah, right, right. And it, it's, it's the same time. It's about the same time that this you've got this massive expansion of who can be on a jury, you know, um, so so. And, and at the same time, they figure, well, we got to start, you know, uh, taking powers away from the jury. Uh, but we also need a way to, to prosecute working class people. We can't do it in a big group because they'll catch on to that. So let's start prosecuting them for like little things like vagrancy, drunken disorderly, you know, whatever, these sort of broad criminal statutes. And let's, we'll go out and get a whole bunch of them at a time and we'll make sure that a jury never sees this. Right, that never sees these prosecutions. So you've got this enormous rise in uh, plea bargained cases and pleaded cases. At the same time that the courts say, okay, we can't, we can't prosecute. In 1842, they say we can't prosecute um, workers just for organizing under conspiracy statutes. That's not going to work anymore. So you got to figure out something else. Um, And about and at the same time that you have working class people sitting on juries. A couple of things you mentioned there.
0: One is that. Was this an active attempt to prevent cases from seeing a jury? That is to say, being
1: exposed to jurors. I think so. Yeah, I think so. And and, and you could chalk it up to coincidence, right? You know, that um, the, the legal system is actively trying to quash the nascent labor movement. And you've got working class people sitting on juries for the first time, you know, And the rise of plea bargaining. Okay, that all happens at the same time. Maybe that's a coincidence. I don't think so. I think they're trying to take the criminal cases away from juries, and they were very successful at it.
0: One other thing that you mentioned is the idea of trying to prosecute people for smaller crimes. And that seems to me uh, to be part and parcel if you eliminate jury trials, if your conviction rates uh, by uh, guilty pleas goes way up. Uh, that would seem to reduce the pressure on lawmakers not to have so many laws on the books. Oh
1: sure, yeah, sure, and and that sort of leads us to where we are now. We I mean, see this giant explosion in the criminal law because it's popular. You know, I mean, if you're if you're a politician, it's almost never bad. It's never been bad in the history of of America that I know of to say, well, let's just, I mean, let's get a little bit tougher on on at least a certain kind of crime, right? You know, maybe in the last 20 years, we've gotten around to thinking, okay, well, tough on crime policies are not going to work. But for most of American history, it's like, well, we're going to take care of these criminals and we're going to clear up our streets and we're going to, you know. And so criminal laws, you know, even now are very, very popular and they're easy to get through state legislatures. And we just set about, um, particularly, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, and just set about decriminalizing everything that we can possibly think of. So in the, in the modern context, we see the, the
0: average American, uh, they maybe have that urge to punish that, that a lot of us feel. It's a shameful urge, I think, in general, but uh, we all have that urge in some cases to, to throw the book at them. And so we elect people who are you know aligned in that way. Uh, but the flip side of that is very few people are ultimately exposed to the humans who are being accused of the things that we have generally been supportive of, uh, or should say, uh, laws passed by politicians that we've been genuinely supportive of. So in some sense, it feels like the balance has been thrown off.
1: Yeah. And here's the interesting thing, too. It's like, So even for those of us that are really involved in the day-to-day sort of, you know, turnings of the wheel of criminal justice, and you understand how terrible the thing is, and you've been in the jails, and, you know, you've looked at the thing um, in its ugly eye, you know, there's still this sort of ancient um, (laughs) aversion to criminals, right? You know, and it's like, that's why this is so effective. That's why the creation of this huge criminal class in the United States has been so effective. Like, slapping the criminal label on somebody is there's something in the reptile part of our brains that is like you know well we don't we don't want to hang out with that person we don't want to interact with a criminal we can't team up with a criminal we don't want our kids to date criminals for heaven's sake right even the even the most progressive of us on criminal justice issues and you know um, the interesting thing you get into the psychology of the thing it's it's and I think it's there in one of the chapters of the book where um, not only does does putting a criminal label on somebody alienate them from the rest of society, but it actually alienates them from themselves. Right. And it makes them more likely to engage in antisocial behaviors and more likely to, you know, re-offend and, and to withdraw from society in general. So it, it's, it, it is a very effective solidarity killer, like putting, putting a criminal label on, you know, almost a third of the adult population, which is where we are now. Um, just just breaks up working-class solidarity in a very effective way, much more effective, by the way, than prosecuting large groups of
0: workers. So the plea bargain, I spoke with, as I mentioned, Samil Trivedi of the uh, ACLU about this, and uh, he was detailing why it is viewed as coercive for plea bargains to exist. And uh, there, are, of course, a lot that goes into making plea bargains uh, An attractive option for people, that is, you go to trial, you'd be facing this, you take a plea bargain, you get this, this is is a lot better, a much shorter sentence. Sure, you plead guilty to this or that, but you're out in X or no jail time or whatever. um, And denying the uh, jury trial has a lot of impacts that we don't really fully understand. So help me understand very clearly, in your view, why is the plea bargain a coercive tool? And and let's be clear, a tool coercing you against
1: the exercise of a constitutional right. Yeah, because we've done in this country what no other country, even countries that have inherited the common law system from Britain like we did, We've decided that we are going to give every carrot and every stick to the prosecution. We're going to let them do whatever they want to marshal somebody into uh, you know, taking a, taking a plea and, and getting that conviction at any cost. And you go back to 1978. In this case, yeah, I, I opened the book with the story of uh, Borden Karcher versus Hayes, and that's from right down the road here in Lexington, Kentucky. You've got this guy who's a 29-year-old black horse transporter who writes a bad check for $88.30, and he gets prosecuted. Now, at that time, you know, we were not really sure as a country. There was still this popular conversation going on about how much power are we going to give prosecutors to really you know, push people into taking deals and giving up their right to trial? Well, the Supreme Court decided that in Paul Hayes' case. Uh, because what happens there is the prosecutor comes to Paul Hayes and you wrote this bad check and you've been in some trouble with the law before. So you're going to take five years on this bad check, five years behind bar for an $88 check. And Hayes is like, I don't want five years for an $88 check. Prosecutor's like, all right, you don't take the five years, then I'm going to hit you with the hab- habitual offender statute, and you're going to do life. Because it's a mandatory sentence of life if they convict you under that. So you're like, no, I'm going to take my chances with the jury. It's a profoundly brave act, I guess. You know, it looks like if you look at the trial transcript, it looks more like bravery, you know, than just foolishness to me. Um, and he wants to take his, his odds with the jury. Well, of course, they convict him and he gets sentenced to life in prison, takes takes the case all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And at that point in time, there's this thought that maybe you know the supreme court is going to weigh in on this and say no we're not going to give all this power to prosecutors and no you can't threaten somebody with life in prison versus 5 years just because you don't want to go to trial this is actually what the prosecutor said when he's examining Paul Hayes on the stand he said isn't it true that i told you that you were going to get a life sentence if you put me through the inconvenience if you put the court through the inconvenience of a jury trial and so you know it's not it's not this this enshrined, you know, ancient right that <laughs> we, you know, it's it's an inconvenience, right, to this prosecutor. And Supreme Court says, well, you know, it, it, you gambled and lost. Sorry about your luck, basically, to Paul Hayes. And they say that it's the prosecutor's job to persuade somebody into into not going to trial. And Mr. Hayes wasn't persuaded. And so that's just how the cookie crumbles. You know, sorry about that. You do life. And what's interesting about that, and like you know, we, we don't teach that case that much, but I think it's a, it's a turning point in American history because, you know, I talked to Vince Aprile who, who practices right down the street. He represented Paul Hayes at the Supreme Court in that case. He's still in practice. And he told me that in, in Hayes's parole application, he got letters from, he, he included letters from prosecutors from all over the country who had written to him saying, we would never do anything like that. We would never threaten. This is 1978. We would never threaten a defendant with life because they wanted to go to trial. Well, that's just, that's outrageous. Of course, now that's the way, you know, after two generations uh, of of lawyers since Borden-Kircher versus Hayes, that's just the way we do business. Everybody knows that they can threaten you with life in prison, that they can, you know, threaten you with death. That's very common. You know, putting the death penalty on the table for somebody who won't take a plea, um, you know, more higher charges, or you know, if they just want to get the case off their desk, they can charge something lower. And here's an offer you really can't refuse. Here's six months probation, you know, for this murder case. You know that I don't want to, that. I don't want to go to trial on. So they've got all the tools, and this is what we've done. That's so different in the United States from the rest of the world. We've given the prosecutor all the tools that they could possibly ever want to frog march somebody right into a plea bargain. I keep getting stuck on this idea that
0: denying the average person uh the ability to serve on a tri- on a jury uh I know people refer to jury duty as oh this is a terrible inconvenience to me, I don't want to do it uh you know and whereas people like me I'm like i'm I'm really interested in this process i have have reasonable means I could afford to uh take a week off to to serve on a on a jury. Uh, and, and yet people in general, view this as you know a, a profound inconvenience, and I just uh, that attitude to me, uh, it, it's very upsetting that that is the attitude that, that people take toward sitting in judgment of somebody that the government would like to
1: put in jail. It's incredible that, you, know, this is the most power that you wield as a citizen, like the jury is where, where you're probably going to be your most powerful, you know, as a citizen is sitting on a jury, uh, for most of us. And yet we have been taught, there is this popular conception that it's just a drag. It's a pain in the ass, you know, to the extent, I mean, to an extent it's, it's driven by just financial concerns for the working class, especially, you know, at, down here, I think they're still paying jurors $12 a day, something like that. You know, and it's very hard to take two weeks off. And, you know, um, so so judges understand that and judges have to run for re-election. And so they're letting people off that, that you know, would really be more likely approximating the peers, the true peers of uh, your average defendant. It's, it's, it's practically inconceivable that you have a true jury of your peers at this point. When you, say, when you
0: say true peers, yeah, uh, to the extent that a criminal defendant is most likely of lower income and lower income people who might be inclined to serve on that jury can't afford to take two weeks Absolutely. off. And I think that's, a, that's something that, that's worth clarifying.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, so, so I mean, there's a study out of Texas that I talk about a little bit in the book where they look at these metropolitan areas and, you know, who even shows up for jury service? And it's only about 20% of the people who are called who show up in the first place. And part of that is cultural attitudes because it's just, you know, jury service is a, is a drag and, and it's it's boring and it's just, you know, going to suck, suck up your life. But I think most of it really is just, you know, um, the financial strain of having to take off work. And, you know, your, most most of these folks that are, are, are wage and hour employees are not going to get paid, you know, for going to... Uh, do jury service, they're just going to be out that money, um, and they simply can't take off for two weeks or however long. So even if they show up, you know, and they say, "Look, Judge, I'm really in a box here. You know, I got a, I got I got a family to feed. I got to um, do this job, and I'm living paycheck to paycheck, and I really don't have time or the resources to sit on this jury, or you know, um, I got a doctor's appointment, or I got to go water the hamsters." Or you know whatever it is, um, and and judges are pretty lenient about that. Especially elected judges are pretty you know they're not gonna they're not gonna uh, put you in a box and say okay you're gonna have to do it anyway. I think for the most part you're gonna find a way to get out of it. I get people calling me all the time. How do I get out of jury duty? Um,
0: in terms of reforms uh, to undermine this. Plea bargaining process that has had has stacked the deck in favor of prosecutors and taken average people out of the criminal justice system as as a critical element of the criminal justice system. There are several things that that obviously I've thought of that uh, I've tried to have people shoot down uh, over the years, but one is: what if jurors were simply told, "Hey, you." may acquit for any reason that you see fit according to your conscience, and no one may second-guess it.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, That's one.
1: But we can do that in Kentucky. I mean, we can do that. We can basically say, you know, say, and we, we've run into this in civil disobedience trials before, where, you know, we can instruct, even if, even if it's quite clear, as a matter of fact, that a statute has been violated, a jury can acquit, and you can instruct them on that. And that, that is, and, and but do judges
0: do that? Is that part of jury instructions? Uh, would, typically, it, it would in certainly
1: be part of my closing argument. <laughs> I don't think they'd include it in the, in the instructions. But yeah, no, you can acquit for any reason. I, mean, I think there's two ways you can get at this problem, and uh, realistic ways, right? Because legislatures can do it, and judges, to an extent, have some control. But I don't think that you're going to get at the problem from the top down. Um, elected prosecutors can make big changes in terms of the way that they screen cases and what their priorities are for prosecution. Right. Um, And so ultimately that's, that's the, the outcome that you want to drive is you have prosecutors that are very selective about, you know, not just cramming, you know, case after case into the system and trying to get a conviction at whatever cost. Um, You know, you can have a prosecutor that says, these are the charges and this is the range of penalties and that's it right you know rather than well let's just do this back and forth forever and the charges aren't really the charges but maybe the charges are something else and if you play nice and don't go to trial well it's going to be this so you can have conscientious prosecutors that are elected prosecutors like deputies can't really do much um but you elect a prosecutor that that cares about reform that's fine and and that's one way of getting at it but usually is only as good as the term of the prosecutor who's been elected right short run solution <clears throat> right um the other way is to um you know, sort of, uh, stoke public consciousness into, um, not being so complacent about plea bargaining. And in the book, I mean, that sounds, that sounds unrealistic on its face, but in the book, I actually profile people that have done that, that have gone and talked to the public, like done door knocking campaigns, you know, um, and built broad coalitions to change public attitudes about criminal justice issues. And so I think that if you put the idea out there, that, like, look, you don't have to go, like you have a right to trial. You don't have to go and plead, even if your defense attorney says so, even if the prosecutor says so, even if the judge says so, you don't have to plead. You can take your case to trial. Um, if you start hammering away at that as, as a message, you know, plea bargaining bad, right? You know, just like this basic, this is not good for America. Let's not plead every single case. Just that basic message. Um, can you then, you know, uh, turn the tide of this thing, like by about like 10%, can you, can you increase, in other words, can you increase the number of trials by 10%? If you do that, I think the system wide effects are tremendous. Um, and I've got a quote from Justice Berger, Chief Justice, former Chief Justice Berger in in the, um, in the book who, you know, Decades ago was saying, all right, well, here we are at 90 percent plea bargaining rate. We're now at 97. If we go back to 80 percent, then that's going to just collapse the whole system. It's going to that's going to require a doubling of resources and more court staff and more prosecutor time and all this stuff. And it just can't we just can't bear. Eighty percent, you know, like plea bargaining rate. We have to have a ninety percent rate, um, which even though the whole rest of the world, like nobody tops out over eighty percent. Nobody, it's, you know, it's just us that are up. It's up here in the nineties. Um, so if you take that, uh, and I think that's true, if you take that for what it's worth, um, then in, in a ten percent swing will um, jam up the whole system. Well, what happens is not that the, it, the system doesn't collapse. But what happens is, if you look at the examples, we've got some historical examples of uh, Alaska and New Orleans, and to a lesser extent, El Paso, that have experimented with doing away with plea bargainings or reducing uh, with plea bargaining rather, and or uh, reducing the number of of bargain cases. And what happens is, the system becomes more intelligent; It doesn't collapse. You know, you have um, a situation where prosecutors are now strapped for time in a way similar to the public defenders. <laughs> And they have to make priorities. They have to make um, choices about the cases that they're going to prosecute and what they're going to take to the mat. And when prosecutors become more selective and start screening out more cases, um, then that puts pressure on police officers to get it right. If they know they're going to be on the stand, they're going to have to bring real evidence to uh, prosecutors. They're going to have to cross their T's and dot their I's and do all the stuff that a good cop should. Uh, rather than just, all right, I'm going to make this arrest and, and it's going to end in a conviction, which is where we are now. That's a very interesting element of this,
0: that yeah. you, you don't really appreciate the degree to which a jury trial also
1: disciplines police. Absolutely. Yeah. They know right now that they can get away with whatever. So they do. You know, not only is there no accountability for the cops that are caught, but most of them just simply aren't caught because they're never really their behavior is never put under a microscope. The public's not involved. They're never going to have to take the stand. You know, if they do take the stand for something, it's going to be in a preliminary hearing where everything is just, you know, a rubber stamp for probable cause or whatever. Um, so, you know, and, and it puts the prosecutor's offices like increasing the number of trials. It doesn't matter what kind of trial it is. You just increase the number of jury trials by about 10%. And this puts the prosecutor's offices in, uh, in law enforcement at loggerheads, you know, until um, the police clean up their act and start just, and stop just giving the prosecutor whatever crap they can come up with. <laughs> so you're helpful. Yeah, I think it can be done. I think it can be done, but I think it has to be done from the bottom up. I, I think top-down solutions are unlikely to work here because, you know, you get into to tinkering with the legislatures and, you know, like all the legislatures right now, even the Republicans are talking a big game about how, you know, they want criminal justice reform and they want to lock up fewer people. And yet, what we do every single session, uh, especially in states like my home state of Indiana, is just ram and jam more criminal laws through, like without really even paying attention to what the texts are. I've got a story in the book about this this million-dollar trespass statute. <laughs> There's You can now be fined a million dollars for trespassing in Oklahoma, $100,000 um, in Indiana, or facilitating trespass. I'm like, trespass? trespass is already illegal, right? No, this is for trespassing onto critical infrastructure. And every single Democrat and every single Republican in the Indiana Senate voted for this thing. And I think it passed unanimously in Oklahoma or close anyway, right? You know, and it's, it's, if you are um, arranging a protest that happens to trespass onto a critical infrastructure, you set up a Facebook page and say, everybody come to this protest and and somebody decides that you've trespassed onto critical infrastructure um, during the course of that protest, and the person that set up the Facebook page can be fined a million dollars in Oklahoma, a hundred thousand in Indiana. You know, it's just and and I talked to an Indiana legislator that you know voted for the law, and he's like, well, we don't know what we're voting on. This is this is just a thing, you know. It looks looks good, and, it, and you know it's a criminal bill, and I might get I might get stung next next time around for not voting for it. So what's the harm in just voting for it? And that's that I think is the general attitude toward, toward um, pushing new criminal laws through state legislatures.
0: Dan Cannon is author of the new book, Pleading Out, we spoke last week. And now it's time for a shout out to a Cato podcast sponsor, Ken Gasevich. Thank you for your ongoing support of the mission of the Cato Institute and the Cato Daily Podcast. Thank you. You can subscribe and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato
1: Podcast.